Welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. On this very special episode, the 101st, we celebrate the best moments so far from top names like Al Gore and Jane Goodall and the lessons that stand out to me personally. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review us. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. So your ability to navigate organizations, to use diplomacy, to, to pick your moments for the long game. This is what leadership is about, and that's what I'm hoping that I can help people embrace. I always consider myself a lucky girl. And that was proven out to me all the more at the tail end of 2020 when I was tapped to do this podcast. Meet the Leader was designed as a chance to talk one-on-one with the people who are working on your behalf to solve problems like climate change or job scarcity. These are the people who are sitting in on the meetings, pushing for teams to be upskilled, who are inspiring engineers to build a better train or a better truck that will slash emissions. The people who are keeping teams on track for big long-term goals that they might not get credit for, but that are critical to move forward with nonetheless. I am proud to say that we have completed 100 episodes, but I wanted to dedicate the 101st to my favorite moments, the ones that stuck with me, the ones that made me laugh, or the ones that gave me a steer. Today's episode includes politicians, activists, CEOs, a commercial fisher, and more. But we'll get started with Jane Goodall. She is the world's best known living naturalist and primatologist, and at age 26, she lived amongst chimpanzees to provide the world firsthand insights on how they lived and behaved. People balked at her age, her gender, her methods, that she ascribed emotions to her subjects, but she pushed forward. And later, she even became an activist for animal welfare and the founder of the Jane Goodall Institute. She's also a prolific author and speaker on the need for hope to help make change happen. Here's a moment where she brought hope to a cranky London cabbie. Stories can change people. Uh, I was in a taxi cab in London going to the airport for a two-week trip to the U.S. And the taxi driver knew who I was. And he started on at me. Oh, you're just like my sister. I can't stand the likes of you. There's all these suffering people. All you care about animals. She goes to the animal children. On and on. (sighs) So I sat forward and I told him stories about the chimps, how we were helping people to rise out of poverty we were helping people find alternative jobs. Uh, I told him how we had sanctuaries for orphan chimps, some of the stories about the chimps showing compassion and altruism to each other. Oh, he just grumpy, 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 and we get to the airport, and neither of us had any change. So in the end, he owed me what I think today would be the equivalent of $50 maybe. And I said, oh, donate it to your sister for her work thinking we'll go and drink it (laughs) off in the pub with his friend. I got back after two weeks. There was a letter from the sister. She said, first of all, thank you for your donation. But secondly, what did you do to my brother? She said, he's been three times to help me. He's interested. He asks questions. We're living in pretty grim times. And that's covering the political scenario, social and, of course, especially environmental. When people lose hope, then they sink into apathy and do nothing. 
or they might become violent and aggressive. And I've watched people who tackle problems a little aggressively and they start arguing with their protagonist, let's say, somebody who thinks differently from them. And you can actually see the entire thing goes wrong because the person they're talking to and pointing a finger out and saying, you've got to change, the eyes sort of cloud over and you can see that person thinking of a rebuttal to what he's being or she's being told. And especially if it's a young person talking to a much older, especially dominant male, um, they don't want to be told what to do. So I found, find some point of, of contact between you and the person you're going to talk to. Find it on the internet or something. Maybe you both love dolls. Spend one minute or two minutes talking about that. So you build a tiny little bridge between you and your different ideas. And then you've got to reach the heart. It's no good arguing with the head. It's no good blinding someone with statistics. Change must come from within, I believe. Real change. You might know Al Gore as the Nobel laureate and former U.S. vice president, but you might not also know that he is the founder of the Climate Reality Project. And through that organization, he has trained tens of thousands of grassroots activists all for climate change. It's the product of three decades of lessons learned in public service and climate action, working to give others the head start he never got, how to connect, how to stay informed, and most critically, how to communicate effectively. Here's Al Gore talking to me about the lessons that shaped him on effective communication, a turning point that he never forgot. I'll give you one moment early in my career that helped to uh, change uh, my approach uh, to leadership. When I first uh, went to the United States Congress uh, quite a long time ago, uh, I uh, organized my first congressional hearing, the first in the House of Representatives on uh, the climate crisis, and I invited uh, the professor who had inspired me as an undergraduate way back <laughs> in the in the 1960s to be the leadoff witness in in, in uh, this hearing. Dr. Roger Revelle was his name, and I naively thought that it, when my colleagues uh, at the dais heard this great wise professor they would have the same epiphany that I had experienced in a full college course. It turned out that a 20-minute congressional statement was not comparable. And at the end of that hearing, there were the equivalent of, of yawns, I would say. And the experience that I had had listening him, to him through that full course was simply not replicated in, in that congressional hearing. And so that caused me to, to stop and think, wait a minute, what were the elements of this communication between him and me when I was younger that engaged me and caused me to really change my thinking and how different uh, that is from a congressional hearing? And so I began then a long journey that I'm still on to try and understand the best way to communicate with people about the existential nature of the climate crisis. It is so different from anything humanity has ever experienced before. The threat of nuclear war during the height of the standoff between the US and the former Soviet Union is the only thing 
that really comes close because this too, like the prospect of nuclear war, is potentially civilization ending. Uh, and and it's, it's changing, it's getting worse so quickly, as I said earlier. We have to be willing to make bold moves. You know, back during uh, the years when I was in the Senate working on nuclear arms control, I became friends with a Russian poet. He's passed on now. His name was Yevgeny Yevtushenko. He wrote a famous poem in the last days of the old Soviet Union called Half Measures. And the poem was about a man standing on the edge of a cliff, looking across the chasm at the cliff on the other side uh, and preparing to, to leap across to safety. And the point of the poem was, don't try it in two leaps. Uh, And the transition we are now trying to make from dirty, destructive fossil fuels to renewable energy, from combustion vehicles to electric vehicles, from inefficient and wasteful approaches to business and industry to the new clean, uh, sustainable approaches, we can't do it in two leaps because it just doesn't work. So finding better ways to communicate Uh, to people generally that this is insane, we have to change it, and we have to change it, not gradually, but quickly. That is uh, a a mission that I've been on since that learning experience way back in the 1970s and early 80s when I first began to try to communicate more effectively about the climate crisis. And what tactics do you employ since that realization to capture people's imaginations? Some of uh, this may sound pretty elementary. You know the old cliche, a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, I, I found that uh, a slideshow is worth, is worth a, a thousand speeches if it's done well. And, and then I was approached by uh, some folks in Hollywood who are very talented to make my slideshow into a movie. And another example of my own naivete, I thought that was a a silly uh, idea. I couldn't see how it would work, uh, but they have more talent than I counted on. And I've participated in launching two movies on climate thus far, but I've tried to use another tool as well. And that is uh, to, to delegate or, or to recruit others to also deliver the message that needs to be heard around the world. And when my first movie came out, I started training grassroots advocates. The first class was 50 people at my farm in Tennessee. And by now, I've personally trained uh, almost 50,000 people who go through a a lengthy, almost week-long course that goes into great detail on the causes and the solutions for the climate crisis, but also focuses on giving all of these people the skills and, and the tools and the networked uh, connections with one another and with the scientific uh, community to be effective uh, advocates. And our focus is increasingly on convincing policymakers to make changes because uh, some of the largest polluters tried to get across the idea that really this burden is on each individual to turn off the light switch when you leave the room to change the light bulbs to more efficient ones and, and so forth. And that's all fine and good. But as important as it is to change the light bulbs, it's a lot more important to change the policies. Carolyn Casey is the founder of The Valuable 500. That's an organization that represents 
22 million workers worldwide in 64 sectors, all working to end disability exclusion. She is an advocate and a powerhouse of a person, and she shared with me a moment when she hit a wall. It is a wall that many founders and entrepreneurs hit, but here's Caroline. On the moment that she learned her own perfection was getting in her way. One thing that was very uncomfortable advice given to me was by Bill Mitchell. He was uh, the C one of the former CEOs of Arrow, which is like a Fortune 200 company. And he was mentoring me. Um, and he said, Casey, because he used to call me Casey. Um, like, yes, you're a system thinker. Yes, you have great vision and ambition. But remember, 80% is good enough. I was like, what? But it has to be perfect. And he just went, if you want to scale change, if you want system change, 80% is good enough. Perfection is what gets in your way. Get out of your way. Get out of your own way. Blake Scholl is a self-described ad tech guy from Amazon and Groupon who went on to found Boom Supersonic, a sustainable aviation company with flights twice as fast as what's offered today. He doesn't have the usual background for an aviation CEO, and he sought out what he needed to found this company. He has run his life by the idea that skills are changeable and adaptable, and they're to support our passions. It is a fine reminder for any of us, and especially key, as reskilling will become all the more important in the years ahead. Here's Blake. I think people underestimate what they can learn and what they can teach themselves mm -hmm. if they are um, motivated and focused. I was very fortunate as a, as a kid, my parents sent me to some really awesome summer camps. Like I, I hated my like normal run-of-the-mill Midwestern US school experience, but I would go to these summer camps where I'd like learn to program or I'd learn uh, you know, how digital circuits worked. And uh, like that stood in my mind as like, this is what it really means to learn. This is exciting. And I'm around people who feel like my peers. And so uh, Carnegie Mellon had this like really visionary program where you could apply as a, a junior in high school, write an essay on why you know, you're kind of done with high school, and then they would throw you in as a freshman if they, if they you know, bought your essay. And I, I feel incredibly fortunate to have stumbled across that opportunity and been able to take advantage of it. And it's, uh, it's a lesson that I feel like plays forward in my life. Like I don't have the resume to build supersonic airplanes. I'm a software engineer by training. I'm like the ad tech guy from like Amazon and Groupon. But I spent a year kind of just teaching myself the fundamentals of airplane design, airplane economics. And it, it, it turns out like I could learn that. And I, I think a lot of people have a very self-limiting uh, mindset that is normal in, in, in our culture of, oh, you go to school and that's where you pick your field and then you become an expert in something and then your expertise just gets more and more and more narrow. And that's certainly a model that can work. But my, my experience is that skills and capabilities are very changeable. Knowledge is changeable, but passions are not. And it's much more powerful to follow your passions and let your knowledge and skills follow where your passion takes you. Boss von Abel is the founder of Fairphone, the world's first smartphone built to make phones circular and supply chains ethical. His phones are ones you can fix yourself and even come with a small screwdriver. The fixing supply chains isn't nearly as straightforward, and he shared with me a make-or-break moment for the company that drove home both the importance and challenge of their mission. Here's Boss. Everything is about efficiency. Efficiency, 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 you know, cost reduction, cost reduction. You know, it's killing a lot of the joy also in, in not only the work, but also you know, what you can accomplish and also the extra time you can spend 
on really you know, finding out these questions and things. I think a great example, we were running a crowdfunding in two, back in 2016, I believe, 16, 17. We sold over 10 million worth of uh, phones that we, didn't, we hadn't produced yet. So it was a pre-sales campaign. We were two, three months late in delivering these phones that we promised to people that were already waiting for half, for half a year for these phones. And at that moment, the factory calls us like, we, we have a problem. <laughs> we're going to be delayed another two months. But we've discussed it here internally, and we also have a solution. The solution is that we're going to get some agency workers in, make overtime, and we're going to catch up. Delay will only be two weeks. <laughs> the problem with that was that, obviously, one of the things that we are against is all this overtime and, you know, and all this pressure that you put on, put, on, put on people and all the problems that come with you know, hiring um, you know, people that without an employment contract to do temporarily work. So at that point, it would solve our problem with you know, people that are already asking for the phone, you know, where the hell is it? And you've promised it. You're your customer. And on the other hand, your supply chain and what you stand for. And it was a tough, you know, it was really a tough decision. We were really like, where do we stand for? And that moment was really, for me, it was really an eye opener. I really felt good to make the decision to say, well, we are Fairphone and we're standing, you know, we want to have better working conditions. And this is exactly the problem. We messed up as a company. We're not going to solve it by pushing down the supply chain to, to make it more efficient, to make it faster, to really get it done. Because, you know, in the end, you know, we are responsible. So I wrote an email, sent it to all the customers waiting, and uh, it was really fingers crossed because we knew this might actually really kill the company because people went just say, well, then I want my money back. Um, but you know, the magical thing happened. We got three people that canceled their, their, pre, their pre-sales uh, because they really needed a phone. And we got so much good feedback on uh, the decision that we made. And I, you know, we, were, we were really happy about having had that you know, discussion inside the company. And even if we'd be chosen differently, I think being open about why you decide these things, what kind of problems you're facing, that is really important. I think now, you know, in a time where we see that, uh, that we are able to, to, you know, to show more transparency because of the media, uh, because of social media, because of everything happening, we could also embrace a bit, bit more vulnerability as a company and not go for efficiency all the time. What was that like in that moment before you, you pressed send? What, what were you feeling? Well, I, I, I felt proud, to be honest. I really felt proud of the team and, and us being able to take such a hard decision and just you know, deal with the consequences. There have also been moments where we, we took decisions which we had to take, uh, you know, reorganizing the company, letting people go. You know, letting, it's, it's really those kind of things that the company also needs to do. No, you can't, you can't make it like one big uh, kumbaya here. It's still a, you know, a commercial enterprise. I think balancing that is, is, is really what, uh, what is nice. Um, and it, you know, there's a cost to it as well. The cost you know, for any company would be, well, the decision-making is slower. Like if people are more aligned with the mission and their values are really into that, you know, it, you know, people are very strong, strongly opinionated about all kinds of things. You can't just go and, and, and not communicate about things. That's also something, if you ask what do companies, you know, future companies need to really embrace, is the vulnerability. It's also letting go of that, again, that kind of efficiency that you want, ultimate efficiency in the decision-making everything, because it also alienates people. It also alienates your suppliers from you, because you're just pushing problems down the throat of other people. Francis Carre is one of those incredible change makers that we have had the good fortune to feature here on Meet the Leader. He made history last year as the first African to win architecture's top honor, the Pritzker Prize. 
but before he was a pioneer for sustainable building, leveraging local materials and traditional techniques, he was just a boy from Gando, a village in Burkina Faso with just 2,000 people, no clean drinking water, no electricity, and no schools. He chatted with my colleague Gail Markovitz about the impact that his designs have had on Burkina Faso, the impact his journey has had on him, and he shared a special message for anyone looking to make change. It is never too late. So for our audience and for you, I have to tell you, I started to study when I was 30. I had another motivation. I believed in what I wanted to give to my people. And I was looking for a solution to do that. So for young students, I will say, don't be shy. Don't think that it's too late for you. Don't think you have no talent. I had no talent, you know. When I started to study, I will go to shop and, and study the number of colorful pencils exist. I was looking through that and say, wow, what abundance. You can come from scarcity. I mean, someone that cannot afford everything and you bring it to greatness. It is possible. Never give up. My conversation with Deloitte's Puneet Ranjan has always stuck with me. He was the CEO when we did this interview. He is the global CEO emeritus now. But he talked about being counted out as a young man being someone who wasn't fitting the mold that others expected, and how we can't let others' ideas for us, even their lack of expectation for us, shape what we can accomplish. I'll let him explain. Well, I mean, I grew up in a town called Rotuk, which is uh, 40 miles west of New Delhi, um, and I was sent to a boarding school. My parents had, uh, felt they weren't appropriate schools in this little town, so I went to a boarding school, but my father uh, went bankrupt but uh, uh, when I was 14 years old. So I came back from the boarding school and went to the local school uh, in my hometown. Um, you know, there isn't formal bankruptcy in India or certainly wasn't then. Uh, he just ran out of money. And so what uh, my brother and I would do is we would go to school and then, of course, help, as most many kids have done, uh, help in the, uh, in, the, in the local factory that my father was still trying to run. You know, it was... It was a, a difficult transition for me, uh, being a teenager, coming back from a, a lifestyle where I was uh, away to boarding school for nine months of the year and then being home and having to work. But, and, and I don't think I knew about this when I was going through it, uh, but it taught me a few things. One, taking the long view. Mm -hmm. And this was something that my father um, always insisted. He was always an optimist and he was the glass half full type of individual. And this, this, the second learning was that this too shall pass. And that's actually been a really good learning as we've navigated this pandemic. As I've talked to my partners and managing directors within Deloitte, I've reinforced the fact that this too shall pass. And it was a learning if you go back, if I go back and reflect on my own life as uh, going through what I was going through as a 14, 15 year old. And then persistence and hard work. Uh, which I believe had been uh, the, the, the key calling cards for me uh, was something that I learned there where, you know, it took all of us coming together, the family coming together, working hard, trying to make ends meet and trying to get through what was a difficult time. Mm -hmm. My husband worked in a factory for many years, stamping parts in Detroit, and it was his father's company and he was happy to contribute, but it also helped him learn that he wanted to do something else. Uh, did you have a similar sense? There was an element of that, but I have to tell you, at age 18, if you had lined up all the all of my friends and you had asked people who would be successful in life, successful being defined as professional success, I don't think anybody would have pointed to me. 
Um, and I mean, that's the truth. Uh, at age 18, I was the one that uh, people pointed to and soft voices say, well, what's going to happen to that poor Puneet? And I, I wonder what his parents think about that. Um, and, and so I, at, some, at some level, I knew that I needed to get out of that. And, and the Rotary Foundation scholarship that I got uh, really changed my life. It gave me an opportunity to come to the United States. I came uh, sight unseen to Oregon, never certainly been overseas, never been on an airplane. And it uh, gave, me a, uh, gave me a perspective, now looking back in retrospective, that life is a marathon. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, today, uh, if you look at professional success in that group of friends, all 18 year olds, I'm doing pretty good. That the future is not preordained. We're, we've been dealt a, a, a hand. We accept that. We will do our best to play that hand and make sure that our future is ordained the way we view it to be ordained. Regarding the future not being preordained, it seems to me that there's been this theme through your life where you maybe haven't taken a path or a label that someone else thought was expected for you. How do you apply that in your own decision-making? How do you make sure that you're carving out your own path? Well, first off, you have to accept that you don't control everything. And in the pandemic is a very good example. I mean, we don't control everything about the pandemic. In fact, we only can control very few elements. Then if you take a view that you play that hand with a certain purpose that drives everything that you do. In our case, as I said, as an organization, our purpose is to make an impact that matters for our clients, for our people and the communities that we live and work in. That is our North Star. And then you apply the, the, the techniques that we talked about, uh, you know, making sure that you have clarity in terms of where you're going, you have clear accountability, you're trying to do it in chunks with some speed, acknowledging that you will make mistakes, but you will correct those mistakes as quickly as possible. Those tools and techniques always work. The other uh, piece, and I'm not trying to be overly religious here, uh, is in the Hindu way, um, there is this notion that you have to do your duty. And that duty is taking pleasure in the act of doing rather than in the outcome. Outcomes are very important. Professional life outcomes are very important. You have to generate bottom line results. You have to generate impact in world climate and world class. But if you take joy in just the act of doing, I believe you end up performing at a much higher level. Yusheng Cho is the CEO of Black Lake Technologies a platform helping to digitize factories, a world that surprisingly still depends a little too much on things like pencil and paper and managers walking around to monitor operations. Black Lake, however, was not his first attempt. That startup failed, and the experience almost led him to give up entirely. Instead, he took to Mount Kilimanjaro, and reaching the summit helped him develop a type of patience that he hadn't had before, and a new way of driving change. I'll let him explain more. So uh, at that time, we were really frustrated because we all got educated from overseas and we came back to China. So initially, we were blaming ourselves. We thought it's because we don't understand the market. We are no longer like a true Chinese in order to be successful as an entrepreneur in China. And uh, But somehow we felt we spent eight months in China if we just 
go back to the US or Hong Kong, that would be such a waste of the month. So instead of making any decision, uh, some friend recommended maybe I should go somewhere else and figure out the puzzles in my mind. So I joined a hiking trip to Kilimanjaro and I trained for a period of time and I, I, I summited uh, the mountain on the Christmas day, 2015. And the journey to the summit was really, really tough. It was a um, you know, snowstorm night with very strong wind and sand and mixed with snow. But, um, you know, the process, how you would summit, you just follow your guide one step by another, ignore everything else. Just watch your step one, two, one, two, and continue to do that for six hours. Then I reached the top. I was tearing my eyes. I felt maybe this is how we should do a startup. Instead of being too, like, have a big idea, we want to be patent here in China, and rush into uh, uh, ivory tower and not understand the market, we should take time. Maybe it's just we didn't spend enough time rather than that we are not Chinese enough, etc. So after the climbing, I went back and uh, talked with my previous co-founders saying that we should make up the lesson that we missed by going into the factory and maybe we can figure something out from there. So I guess this more zen mindset uh, opened our eyes to more opportunities and be more patient. One of my favorite questions is to ask people about a habit that they can't work without. Verizon CEO Hans Vestberg certainly delivered. He is a perfect interview for Meet the Leader since he has been a student of leadership since his days as a professional handball player, studying how coaches and leaders operated. But importantly, he is dedicated to big long-term goals, including digital inclusion. We even lobbied hard for that to become an 18th sustainable development goal. He told me about a special practice that he's used since he's become CEO to make sure that his time matches up with his biggest priorities. Here's Hans. I think that uh, when I became CEO for the first time, I I, I was looking for a, a manual, what is a CEO doing? And uh, I didn't find it because there's no nothing to read. There's no, this is how you should do it. So I decided actually to do a planning, how I would spend my hours in advance because I was so worried I would be consumed of a topic and I was miss something else. So I started uh, 2009 to actually uh, de- dedicate my time in percentages in six, six different buckets, three external and three internal, which all were aligned to the strategy of the company and where we were going, what was important. And then I started to follow up. How was my hour spent the quarter compared to my forecast? I have done that since 20, 2009. And I still do it. So I actually measure every hour I work. I put them in, in, in the six buckets in order to see that it reflects what is important for, for the company and where I should dedicate my time. And it can swing. I had had quarters, for example, when I became the CEO of Verizon, where I spent roughly 80% on the internal three buckets, meaning talents, the strategy, uh, uh, and the board. And then uh, only 20% externally. And it being quarters when I spent 80% externally, when we have done a, a big acquisition and things like that, I speak a lot with customers, I speak a lot with shareholders, I'm in media. So I have all the time been measuring that. And, and one thing I always do, just to tell my team, when I meet the top leaders of my company, I always put up the graph, how I spent the time the last quarter. And I always ask them, okay, how did you spend your last quarter? And uh, did you really support where you should be or where you should spend your hours? And I think that's how I have been managing because it doesn't really matter if you're CEO or whatever. As long as you're a leader, you lead other people, you need to see that you spend the time on the things that are the right for bringing that function or unit forward. 
Uh, and that was a learning for me. And, and I'm a super nerd. I have everything in Excel, so I measured that every day because it works for me in order to stay, stay very focused on the things that are important for the company. So I don't spend on things that are great and cool and fun for me, but has nothing to do for the company. So you're tracking your hours in Excel and also a calendar program? I have a calendar program that are different colors, six different colors for the different type of things. Then I point that down to Excel and then we do a lot of graphs so I can show in a bar every quarter or every month actually how I spend the time. And you can see that over time how it changes. So I can basically, this is super nerdy, I'm sorry, but I can plot from 2009 every month up to 2021. I had a small gap when I was free for six months, which I which was uh, in between two jobs, which I didn't plot. And that was a really tough for me. But uh, other than that, I have it. So was there some kind of event that triggered this? Some kind of a turning point when you realized that you had to change how you worked? I think the turning point there was that I was appointed a CEO. But of course, when the water goes up, basically, uh, you, you need to float with it in order to manage more and more if you go up in a, in a hierarchy. I found myself basically every time standing on the same place and trying to manage the same way as I did in my previous position. But this is much more different, a different uh, vertical or maybe much bigger. And I think I've learned every time to make that pivot quicker, to move to another level of, of dealing uh, with my leadership. And I think that's what everybody struggles, struggles with when you move to a new job. You know, hey, I, I, I knew how to work before. Now I'm going to have a new job. I bring that with me. That's usually, you, you at least need to do some adaptation in order to succeed in that job. But I, I think as anybody else, I've, I've been super stressed. I worked like crazy in order to, to succeed in my new job and, and actually applying uh, the process for my previous one. And I had a lot of that between my, I would say, between my age of 30 to 40, super anxiety, <laughs> just working day by night to, to deliver in order to see the, what are the most important things that I should deliver and see that others are working as well. But you, you learn by time. And I, I think I'm not saying that I'm perfect night and now I'm far away from that, but at least I'm, I'm better right now. I, I, I still improve because for me, I spend time on my leadership because it's so important. That's really what I, what I can contribute to this organization. I have better technical people. I have better accountant. Everybody's better in everything than me. The only thing I can contribute is to lead and empower these people and give them the North Star where we're going and giving the energy that they like that like to be at this place and, and, and a clear direction. Uh, and that's why leadership becomes so important to me because that is the competence that I have and I need to develop it. I cannot manage Verizon today as I did Ericsson in Chile in 1994. It would be a disaster. So you need to adapt to leadership. You need to spend time on it. And I, I spend a lot of time on my leadership. Harmony Jane Wayner is the vice chair of the Arctic Youth Network. She's also a commercial fisher, a fishery scientist, an indigenous woman from the Arctic native village in the Bristol Bay region. I caught up with her at Davos this year. And in a moment when we were all clamoring to hear from her, she was looking to hear from other voices. Here's Harmony. I'm really happy to be invited to such a forum like this mm -hmm. and get the chance to really share um, authentically. But I can't speak on behalf of all of Alaska or all of the Arctic region, and there's so many more voices um, that need to be heard. So I just, I wanna be 
kind of the boundary spanner between that, but know that my perspective is just one perspective of many. I think I'm trying to listen more than I speak. Yeah. Um, and that was a value that was taught to me um, early on, but I can kind of jump sometimes to want to um, express right away, but I need to take a moment to stop and um, hear from other perspectives. And I think I learned that a lot when I was living in other places too, because I was in international communities and um, yeah, in places like this that uh, you just don't get exposure to if you're um, in Alaska all the time. <laughs> Some of my favorite interviews on Meet the Leader have helped highlight how anyone can lead and the many unsung qualities that are important to really making change happen. My colleague Alex Court caught up with John Amici, the psychologist, former professional basketball player, and the author of leadership book, The Promise of Giants, on just that topic. Here's John. It, it is so true that we've, we've all grown up with the idea of the strong man leader. Uh, and, and it is a strong man leader. It's all the stereotypes associated with that, the power and the willingness to use it despite collateral damage. It's the boldness with no restraint. Um, it's the certainty with no room for doubt. It's invulnerability. It's omnipotence. It's omniscience. The idea that you know everything and cannot be harmed. It's like all of that wrapped into one. You can look around the world and see leaders who embody that, even now. And it, it means that there's a bunch of people who think that that they have no place at the leadership table because they're not like that. The quiet man thinks that he cannot be a leader. His entire life isn't laced with bravado and volume, but he can. Any woman, you know, you kind of have to look to New Zealand before people think that there's a, there's another woman who's a leader, but there are remarkable women out there who can do leadership their own way. There are men who are empathic and warm who think they can't be leaders because that's only for women. There are black and brown people who think they can't be because they see nothing like that around them. You can find your own way, your own authentic way to be a leader. You can find your inner giant no matter what. It is effortful. And to me, it requires three things. The first is introspection because that's where everything starts to me. You can't be a leader if you don't know anything about yourself. And it is amazing. Uh, I coach some quite senior people in, in big businesses. And our first conversation is often so revealing because it's that conversation where they realize that whilst they are technically brilliant and they know so much about their sector, once you wander into questions about who they are, what they stand for, what are the qualities that they have, what are the deficits they have, what are the things that they respect and love, their knowledge disappears. Their insights are, are, are shallow. Knowing yourself is, is really the first key to being a great leader whatever your context. Then there's the interpersonal. How do you connect with, how do you communicate effectively with, with eloquence, with people who are both similar and dissimilar from you, from people who are both familiar and unfamiliar to you? Though there are skills there that we require and many people never bother developing them. They, they develop a skill to work with, to be able to communicate in a kind of transactional way with the people they work with and rely upon. But otherwise than that, never imagine developing the kind of eloquence and authenticity that's required to inspire and motivate, and galvanize. And then there's the organizational piece. And people think that's obvious, right? As a leader, you, you lead an organization, but not always. Leaders exist at all different levels. 
there's a law firm in London. And when I walk in, there's a young man on the desk, on the front desk in security. He knows everybody and everything that's going on. And I'm often amazed that nobody seems to recognize that this man is a leader in this organization. He sets the tone for this organization from the moment you walk into it. So your ability to navigate organizations, to use dis- diplomacy, to, to pick your moments, to cause a conflict and to bite your tongue at others for the long game. This is what leadership is about. And that's what I'm hoping that I can help people embrace. I was asked my interviews for a book they recommend. They have all been great. Classics from organizational psychologist Adam Grant, resource books that school us up on central banks or digital currencies, history books and memoirs that remind us that others have navigated uncertainty before us. But Andrea Fooder's recommendation stood out. The chief procurement officer of the Volvo Group chose a children's book, Pippi Longstocking, and it's one that reminds us that there are leadership lessons everywhere, as long as we care to look. Now, now this is the moment where you want me to be super smart, or I will come with fantastic. <laughs> You've already been super smart. I don't need- <laughs> you know, now I should bring up uh, fantastic titles of <laughs> super <laughs> top-notch books, right? Uh, <laughs> um, I would actually uh, take a complete different approach. You know, one one book I would still recommend because I love it since years is Pippi Longstocking. I love it. And you know why? Why? Because Pippi is still today a role model for many things because she is strong. She does not take care about gender-specific roles and she demands even from the grown-ups that she's treated on eye level. And also her leadership skills, you know, she was a great leader. She motivated people to follow her by convincing them. So for me, she is still today a role model of a true leader. I'm going to end this episode where we started with Jane Goodall. I had asked her in that interview for a message to listeners. And it's one that I think is still just as valid today and one that I'm going to leave you with as you go about your day and make your choices big and small to make the impact that only you can. Uh, While I have the airwaves, I would like to say that it's really important that that everybody understands that they as an individual matter, that they make a difference, they make an impact on the planet every single day. And unless living in abject poverty, you can make conscious choices, ethical choices in how you live each day. And even the very poor, they can make some choices too. Like, am I going to be kind or cruel to an injured animal that I find? Am I going to smile and reach out to a sick person in my community? So we can all make some decisions to lead a more ethical life, more environmentally sustainable life. I want everybody to know that. They matter. And they may think I'm just one person, what I do can't make a difference. No, if it was just one person, it wouldn't. But the cumulative effect of millions, hopefully billions of people making conscious ethical choices will move us towards a better world. And the last thing I would say is that one thing which is, is amazing. Every single major religion, all of them, have the same golden rule, and that is do to others 
as you would have them do to you. If everybody followed that golden rule and we applied it to how you think about and act towards animals and nature, and if we could even bring it to government levels, national levels, just think what the world would be like. And that's our 101st episode. Thanks so much to the leaders who talked to me for this episode and for every episode and Meet the Leaders run so far. And fear not, we've got more great interviews to come in the months ahead. A transcript of this episode and those from my colleagues' episodes of Radio Davos are available at wef.ch podcasts. This episode was presented and produced by me with Juan Turan as studio engineer for episodes recorded in Davos, Taz Kelleher as editor, and Gareth Nolan driving studio production. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina with 101 episodes under her belt. Have a great day.